We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Today is Thursday, September the 3rd, 2020. On today's show, we kick off the TSUS season preview series today. I am breaking down the Gamecocks offense as a whole heading into 2020 football season. I'll look back at 2019, talk about key departures, key returners, the top storylines heading into this year, why they'll be better, why they'll be worse. Season will be successful if and give my predictions for this unit in the 2020 football season. Also, news and notes to get into your listener questions, and we have a fantastic conversation. Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South in the Saturday Down South podcast joins the show to talk about the Big Ten's incompetency, the SEC as a whole, his picks for the SEC, and obviously give his projections for South Carolina's 2020 football season. Before we get into everything, this is a podcast from you by our friends over at MyBookie. Guys, it's summertime. We're heading into football season, though, and at MyBookie, that can only mean one thing. It's winning season. It is winning season. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means free bets, super contests, survivor, and more. At my bookie, winning season is all about your chance to win big. Guys, you can bet NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball, UFC, obviously college football, NFL. Hey, we've got college football this weekend that you can bet on. You can bet on literally anything. It's the craziest sports summer of your lifetime. It's finally here. It's simple. Just make your picks, win big, and collect your cash. Guys, invest in your intuition. Select from hundreds of future bets, or you can bet the games in real time with MyBookie's live betting. Put that big brain of yours to good use. Go to MyBookie.ag. That's MyBookie.ag. Use the promo code GAMECOX. It's that simple. MyBookie.ag, promo code GAMECOX, and double your first deposit guys so what that means is you go in there you put a thousand dollars in guess what you're getting up to a thousand dollars in free play they're going to match that you put in 500 they're going to give you 500 again new players get up to a thousand dollars in free play it's designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet thousands across sports wagers props and parlays await sign up now to bet with the best and celebrate your victory again that's mybookie.ag promo code gamecocks your winning season begins today only at my bookie. Let's get it.
guys. I'm Chris Wilson with Spurs Up Show. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in. We have got a packed show. I'm very, very excited to kick off the TSUS season preview series. Obviously, we went through the position units. We broke down all the specific position units. Now, we are breaking down the units as a whole in regards to offense, defense, and special teams. That is what we will spend the next week and a half talking about, amongst other things. I'm very, very excited. Appreciate you guys tuning in. And it feels good to be back. Obviously, we had no Monday show this week. Had a lot of stuff on the business side to take care of, honestly, because, listen, we're going into football season. I'm looking for new partners, new sponsors. We got a few of those coming. It's been very good, productive, and I appreciate you guys understanding, being patient with me, understanding that I have to take care of the business side as well. Listen, I wear a lot of hats. I got to do it all. So, hey, I appreciate you guys tuning in, but it feels good to be back. It feels good to be back. Guys, guess what? You know what else feels really good? Number one, it's September. And there is Gamecock football in September. Number two, you're listening to this right now. There's college football on TV tonight. Tonight. Is it Southern Miss, South Alabama, and UBA, UAB in Central Arkansas? Yes, but either way, there is college football being played on television tonight, and I could not be more excited, could not be happier. Let's all keep a little perspective, especially when you think about there were many times, and I'm sure all of us at some point this offseason questioned whether we'd even get to this day. And the fact that we have so refreshing, so awesome. So, again, I say thank you to those that have tuned in. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. It's a pleasure to come to you here on this Thursday and talk college football and talk Gamecock specifically. A couple of housekeeping items before we get into everything. I just said thank you. Let me say thank you again, guys. A little round of applause. We hit 300 reviews on iTunes. Let's go. We hit 300. Now let's get to 400. If you haven't done so, rate, subscribe, take five seconds out of your day. Go leave a five-star review, whether you're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Leave five stars. Leave your thoughts. Leave your feedback. I truly do appreciate it. Like I said, thank you so much, guys. We hit 300 reviews on iTunes. Now let's get to 400. Let's get to 500. My goal is to eventually get 1,000. I want to hit 1,000 reviews. So Please do that if you haven't done so, and thank you to those that took the time to do that. Also, if you're not subscribed, be sure to subscribe. Guys, in two weeks, in two weeks, excuse me, three weeks, two and a half weeks, two and a half weeks, it will be game week, which means the daily podcasts will return. And I'm very, very excited for that because I love doing the show daily. But my point is, if you haven't done so, again, no matter what platform you're on, subscribe to the podcast. You're going to want those daily notifications so you don't miss a single one. Be sure to rate, be sure to subscribe, and again, thank you so much to everyone that's already done that. Also, another thing, really quickly, in case you guys didn't see, which I'm sure you did, the season simulation, the TSUS season simulation we've been doing on NCAA 14, it concluded with South Carolina going four and six. Um, Obviously, I am recording this before. I'm also doing a bonus simulation I did Wednesday night, last night, against Clemson, so I'm recording this before this. You guys will know that outcome when this show comes out. But just wanted to say thank you to everyone that tuned in, made that a success. Um, Overall, it's a lot of fun. People ask, oh, my God, why are you doing this? Why are you posting this? Oh, man, blah, blah, blah. Dude, just have some fun. Just lighten up a little bit. It's a freaking video game. It's fun to watch. It's fun to kill time in the offseason. I enjoy it. So we're going to continue to do it. Um, Last thing really quickly before we get dive into it, Rowdy Rooster Radio all this week, but I will tell you guys, New content potentially coming soon. Um, It's been kind of a trial and error thing with the Blog Talk Radio and the Rowdy Rooster Radio stuff. I don't think Rowdy Rooster Radio as a whole is going anywhere, but the way we're doing it, the platform we're doing it on, um, I'm going to try some different things as we go into the season. I'm very, very excited about that as well because it means more content for you guys and more opportunities 
to interact with you guys doing that content as well. So with that being said, let's get into it again. The TSCS, can't even talk. The TSUS season preview series, that is a tongue twister, gets going. And what better place to start than arguably the biggest question on this Gamecocks football team, and that is the offense heading into the 2020 football season. Before we go forward, we must go back. Let's take a look at the 2019 season. As we all know, it was a struggle. You lose Jake Bentley the first game of the season. From there, you have Ryan Holinsky, who's a true freshman. Listen, I thought played fairly well. I talked about Ryan already through 11 touchdowns, five interceptions. But statistically, a very rough year for you offensively. 22.4 points per game, which was 12th in the SEC and 104th nationally. You had 371.9 yards per game, which was 11th in the SEC and 96th nationally. Um, you take a look, the Gamecocks averaged 222.3 yards per game passing, which I'd say for a true freshman quarterback is not that bad, um, which was seventh in the SEC. I mean, you're almost top half with that, 74th nationally, though. And then rushing, the run game continues to be a struggle for Gamecock football in the last few years, 149.7 yards per game, 10th in the SEC, and 82nd nationally so long story short listen it was a rough year offensively I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know it was a rough year on offense especially down the stretch and the Gamecocks oh by the way did not score a touchdown and what was it their last um I believe uh, 10 quarters of football didn't score a single touchdown against A&M or Clemson and I think the second half the Gamecocks didn't have maybe they did yeah strike that forget that the last two games of the season though you didn't even score a touchdown so it was a rough year, especially near the end of the year for South Carolina. Uh, moving into key departures from that team last year, there are some big departures. You have to start with wide receiver Brian Edwards. I mean, just a phenomenal pass catcher. You take a look at his statistics. 71 catches, 816 yards, and six touchdowns for South Carolina. Easily led the Gamecocks in all those categories. A record-setting wide receiver at South Carolina, and he will be dearly missed. I think it just speaks to his ability that he's probably going to crack the starting rotation for the Oakland Raiders, which is insane. He's a true rook. He's a he's a rookie going to crack the rotation for an NFL team. You take a look at the running back position as well. Tons of departures there. Running backs Rico Dowdle, Tavian Feaster, Mon Denson, and AJ Turner all gone from this year's roster. And then finally on the offensive line, a big departure. I think one that hasn't been talked about enough is center Donnell Stanley. Donnell Stanley, a guy who was an anchor on that offensive line, did a great job in that up tempo offense. Um, you lose him from last year's team as well. Key returners for this 2020 football season. Got to start at the quarterback position. Ryan Linsky returns after his freshman year, uh, looking to secure the job, if you will, as we go in this 2020 season. But Ryan Holinsky returning is a big one. Obviously, wide receiver Shai Smith, he's going to step in, look to be wide receiver number one, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. And an offensive lineman, Sedarius Hutchison. I think you could throw Dylan Wanham in this as well, but Sedarius Hutchison, no question the best offensive lineman amongst the bunch for the Gamecocks, and I think a guy that's definitely going to be the leader of this offensive line for sure. Um, let's dive into top storylines for 2020. And, guys, where else could you start? Mike Bobo. Mike Bobo's new offensive scheme is the lead storyline for 2020. And, listen, it's something that I've talked about a lot off this offseason. I've talked about it a lot. I have. But I, I, I am very, very intrigued and very excited to see what does Mike Bobo have up his sleeve? What is Mike Bobo going to put together? What type of system is he going to devise to get the most out of the talent amongst this offensive group? Because, listen, I don't think there's zero talent on this offense. Are there question marks all over the field? 
absolutely there are question marks all over the field on the offensive side. But I think there's talent. So what Mike Bobo does with that talent, obviously, and listen, you're going you're gonna to hear later in my conversation with Connor O'Gara, this is by far the most important hire of Will Muschamp's coaching tenure. I mean, this is the one that has to work out for Will Muschamp. Listen, I think we can all agree, barring some total collapse, Will Muschamp's probably going to be back next year due to the economic impact that COVID has had on everything. But this is still a very, very big year for Will Muschamp and this football team. And if Will Muschamp's coaching career is going to be revitalized, it is going to be because of Mike Bobo. Mike Bobo, guys, had a lot of success, a lot of SEC success, was pretty good at Georgia, developed some damn good quarterbacks at Georgia. It didn't work out at Colorado State, okay, but a guy that, listen, very well respected, and I think South Carolina, listen, they certainly upgraded, even though I think Brian McClendon got way too much flack for the, for the problems last year. I think he got way too much flack, but undeniably, this is a huge upgrade. A guy who has big-time SEC experience calling plays. And I think it's the best OC Will Muschamp has ever had. Now, will it work? That is the question. Will it work? Will Will Muschamp finally let the reins off and let Mike Bobo do this thing? And simply put, will his scheme work? Because I've talked about before, and listen, I know that right now it's sort of guesswork. Who knows what Mike Bobo is going to do? But from the things that I've seen, I've seen him run at Colorado State from what we saw him run at Georgia, and the players he has on this team and what this team's strengths are, and from the things he said in press conferences and during fall camp and stuff like that, I think this is going to be a 60-40 run team. You're going to see a lot more under center. <clears throat> I don't think there's any question that. It's not going to be that up-tempo offense we saw under Brian McClendon, which I think could serve to be a good thing. But I'm extremely intrigued because, listen, the offensive numbers have to improve from last year. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. They have to. If you're going to have the type of season you want to have, they've got to improve. You don't have a choice. Is Will Muschamp able to – or, excuse me, is Mike Bobo able to get the most out of the talent that he has on the offensive side of the football? It'll be very interesting to see. Another big storyline going into this 2020 football season for the Gamecocks offense. Who's playing quarterback? <laughs> there's a quarterback battle. Whether fans want to admit it or not, there's a quarterback battle right now between the Colorado State transfer in Colin Hill and Ryan Helinski, who was your guy all last season. At this point, and I've told you guys before, and I think I said it on last week's show maybe, gun to head, if you ask me to put money on it right now, either side, I've got to go with Colin Hill. But I think it's going to be a battle all the way through. Listen, we've still got three weeks of fall camp. There's a lot that can change. And listen, the thing that Ryan Helensky has over Colin Hill is that Ryan Helensky has been through those battles. He's been through those SEC battles. He's played in SEC games. Meanwhile, listen, I can admit, Colin Hill, very, very average at Colorado State. Very average. But you look at the other side, the, the advantage that Colin Hill has. He's been in this Mike Bobo scheme for four-plus years. And it's not an indictment on Ryan Helensky, but Ryan Helensky is drinking water out of a fire hose right now. He's learning a brand new system, brand new verbiage. Oh, and by the way, he's getting those reps in in this system. I mean, very limited reps that he will have once we get to op the opening game. So, listen, I think the quarterback battle may be even something that bleeds into the season. Like, I I'm not convinced that the guy that starts the season off as the starting quarterback is going to be the guy that finishes it. I don't know. 
I don't know, but I think there truly is a quarterback battle. And again, you'd be you'd be foolish not to say that it's not a top storyline for this Gamecocks offense heading into 2020. Will it be Ryan Helensky or will it be Colin Hill? And listen, I want to say this and make this point very clear too. Guys, I would have never guessed we'd be having this conversation. I, I genuinely thought when Colin Hill was brought in, he would be brought in as a guy to mentor Ryan Helensky, to help out Ryan Helensky, because I agreed with you all. I agreed with you all that he was very pedestrian at Colorado State. And you have your guy in Ryan Helensky. I thought maybe Colin Hill would push Ryan a little bit. And, and maybe that's all they're doing. Maybe they just want to put the heat on Ryan Helensky and, and give him some competition to bring out the best in him. Listen, we saw that with Jake Bentley. We've seen what competition can do for guys. Some guys, it brings out the best in them. But honestly, like from everything that I've heard and I've seen and these press conferences and the media availabilities and all that stuff, I, right now I'd put gun to head. I'd, I'd say Colin Hill's the starter. I, I mean, either way, I don't give a damn who starts. I want to win football games. I don't care if that's Hill. I don't care if that's Alinsky. But we know this is a huge year, so who do you go with? Again, that's going to be a major, major storyline as we roll into the Tennessee game and throughout this season as well. Um, another big thing for me, another huge storyline for me. Again, talked about there's a ton of question marks on this offense. And one of the biggest, arguably the biggest question mark among the position units is the wide receiver group. You guys remember, I gave the wide receivers a D-plus in the position unit preview. Because, that, listen, there, there's a lot to replace. There are a lot of questions to answer. And one of them, and I think the thing that's not even being talked about enough, is Shy Smith ready to embrace the role as your number one wide receiver? Listen, I, I think Shy Smith is extremely talented. He's a guy that I picked out as my breakout player last year for the offense. I really thought Shy Smith would fill that void that Debo Samuel left because, listen, their games are, are very comparable. They're very similar. You know, he's that speedy slot guy, can make big plays for you, whatever. And we saw Shy Smith do that at times. But here are the facts. Here, see, here's the thing. When you had Debo Samuel on campus and Brian Edwards was there too, it always felt like with that combo, it was more of a 1A, 1B type feeling. Like, I always felt like Brian had just the – he had it as far as, like, he had it in the sense of he felt like he was a number one wideout. You know what I mean? Debo might have been the more, more explosive player, but I always felt like Brian Edwards is, a, is built like a number one wide receiver. The facts with Shai Smith is this. He's never had a season where he's caught for more than 500 receiving yards. Last year, just two touchdowns. Is he ready? Is he ready to attract? And that's, listen, that's with the attention going to Brian Edwards. That's what defense is keying in on Brian Edwards, not him. So is Shy Smith ready? And listen, like I said, I think he has all the talent in the world. But a lot of what this receiver group is going to be this year, it's going to fall on Shy Smith. He needs to by far have his best year as a Gamecock. Is he ready to embrace that role and fill that role and fill that void that Brian Edwards left a year ago? Another top storyline. we got to move to another position unit. With Marshawn Lloyd, unfortunately, out, devastating, out for the season, what do the running backs look like? I mean, who, who knows? What do the running backs look like? Listen, I think, and I said this when Marshawn Lloyd got hurt, because it's all, with all due respect to those guys, because I think you have four capable guys back there. I don't think you have anyone that was going to be like Marshawn Lloyd was. I think Marshawn Lloyd was a true 
20, 25 carries a game guy. And listen, maybe I'm hyping him up too much. Maybe I'm giving him, giving him too much credit. I understand he's a true freshman. But out of Harris, Zaquandre White, Fenwick, and Rashad Amos, until proven otherwise, I don't see a certified bell cow type running back back there. I don't see that guy. That's not to be confused with, I don't see this group having some success. I think this group can have success. I think there's enough able bodies in this group to be productive, you know, to, to more than hold their own. Again, who's going to be the number one running back? I have no idea. What it feels like to me is going to happen. This is going to look a lot like, honestly, we've seen the running back position handle the last couple of years where you got three or four options and it's really just whoever gets hot that day is going to get the bulk of the carries. I hope there's a little more structure to it than that, but that's sort of what it feels like. Obviously, it hurts to lose Thomas Brown from last year's coaching staff, but that's what it really feels like this is going to be like. But with Marshawn Lloyd out, what do the backs look like? I mean, because, I, again, I think South Carolina is going to be a run-heavy team. I think they're going to be a run-heavy team, at least 60-40 run. I think they're going to run the football more than they pass it. So you're going to need a capable running back. Who, who, who amongst this group steps up to take the number one role? Is it Fenwick? Is it Harris? Heck, is it White? Is it the true freshman? Who knows? So what do the running backs look like? Because, again, they're going to be a key integral part of this South Carolina offense, no questions asked, in my opinion. Another top storyline and something that will certainly help the running game, you have an experienced offensive line. I talked to Phil Steele about this, and I forget the exact number, but you have a ton of starts returning, a ton. And Phil Steele talked about He talked to Will Muschamp because, you know, Phil Steele goes through, he talks to every single coach, he gets insight on everything. Will Muschamp told him, and I think there is some validity to this. I think there's some real ground to stand on because, listen, I, I know we – kind of take what Will Muschamp says with a grain of salt a lot of times because he said some things that haven't necessarily come true. But one thing that Phil Steele told me he said that I do believe is that this is his best offensive line group he's had since he's been at South Carolina. And listen, it should be. It should be. You've been there for five years. You've built depth. You've recruited well. I mean, you take a look at this group. I, I like this group. I like this group. Ja'Kai Moore, Sedarius Hutcherson, Hank – or excuse me – uh. Hank Manos, Jovan Gwynn, Dylan Wanham, Eric Douglas, Jason Turntine. You got some bodies there. There's some, there's some real bodies there. So, again, listen, you lose Donnell Stanley. Replacing the center is a big thing. It is a big deal. The center is the quarterback of your offensive line. I thought maybe Hank Manos would step up and win this job, but it sounds like Eric Douglas looks like he's probably going to be slated to be the starter at this point. But if nothing else for this Gamecocks offense, because listen, with all the question marks, at least you have an experienced offensive line coming back. At least you have a good, solid offensive line. You can do things with a good offensive line. Hey, it don't matter if you got all the other positions figured out. If your offensive line stinks, you're screwed because the game of football, as you all know, is one in the trenches, offensively and defensively. It is one in the trenches. So if you can win in the trenches, you're going to make life a lot easier on whoever's playing quarterback, whoever's playing running back, whoever's playing wide receiver. So I think that is one positive for this South Carolina offense, for sure. If you're trying to draw positives, you do have a good offensive line to lean on, and I'm, I think they're going to have to lean on them a lot this season. Finally, my last big storyline for 2020, and it may be the biggest storyline, to be honest with you. 
is that will this be the first time since the Steve Spurrier era that South Carolina has a real identity offensively? Listen, it's been a struggle. I mean, it's, it's been a flat-out struggle for whatever reason, whether it be a changing of the guard at quarterback or the bad OC or whatever you want to say. But it's been a struggle since the Steve Spurrier days. South Carolina under Will Muschamp has just not figured it out offensively. They've not done so. And the biggest thing you can always draw back to, and I talked about this with Mike Yuva a few weeks ago, and I've talked with other, others about this this offseason, but you, when's the last time you looked at a South Carolina football team or you went into a week, let's say you went into the game, and you're like, we're going to win because we're going to do this well offensively. Or we're going to do that well. Or, oh, my God, we're going to win this matchup because it's something we like to do in their week there. When's the last time you had that thought? I genuinely can't remember. I genuinely don't remember. I can't remember the last South Carolina team that had an identity since Steve Spurrier. Do we run it well? Do we throw it well? Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) One week South Carolina's doing this. One week they're doing this. One week they're going five wide. One week they run. Well, they they want to run the football every play. Will this be the first time in the Will Muschamp era that South Carolina offensively has a true identity, where we can go in each and every single week? Listen, I'm not saying don't adapt. I'm not saying don't change up your schemes to who you're playing, but. I think it is important, again, to have an identity, to know, hey, this is what our goal is in an offense. This is who we are as an offense. You can work around that. You can game plan your entire team around that. But, man, you're just making life really hard on yourself when you're like, well, one week we'll do this, one week we'll do that, one week we'll do that, one week we'll try this, we'll try that, whatever. So under Mike Bobo, his scheme, will South Carolina finally find a true identity, whether that be – being a 60-40 run team, being a little bit more of a hybrid spread team, if you will, a team that throws the tight end a lot, a team that throws to the backs out of the backfield a lot, a team that whatever it is, will you finally see a South Carolina football team, a a Gamecocks offense that finds a true identity? We'll see. Um, All right, let's get into why they'll be better, why they'll be worse. And ironically, I want to start with why I think the, the Gamecocks offense will be better if they are better, while they'll be better in 2020, and I think it is a true identity. You're going to finally see an offense. I think Mike Bobo, being an experienced OC, being an experienced play caller, I think he is going to implement an identity. I've talked about all offseason again, and I'll reiterate it again. A 60-40 run team, much more under center. South Carolina is going to try to ground and pound, use the play action. I think that's what they're going to try to do. And I think that's why they will be better, honestly. Because, again, when you can stick to something and you know who you are and you know what you identify with, it's just going to do wonders for you in the long term. Everybody gets on the same page. You start getting some, uh, some consistency, if you will. You know, you start having some breakthroughs. Some guys get familiar with the system, whatever. You're going to have a true identity offensively. And I think that is a reason. If the Gamecocks offense is better in 2020 – I think that is why they'll be better. Now, let's get into why they'll be worse. If they are, why I think the Gamecocks will be worse offensively in 2020. And this one's pretty simple, man. It's just the question marks. There are so many question marks and the lack of proven playmakers on this offense. The lack of explosive 
playmakers on this offense. I mean, listen, you, you have to replace all the running backs you had. You have to replace Brian Edwards, which I, I almost would say he's underrated for what he did at South Carolina, which it feels silly to say he was underrated because he had a lot of recognition, but the dude was such a weapon, such a weapon. And you're losing those weapons from an offense that wasn't good last year. That wasn't good. First off, okay, was not good. So there are question marks abound. Who's going to be the big play guys? You know, who are going to be your playmakers this year? And I think if South Carolina is worse offensively than they were last year, it'll just be simply put because there are so many question marks and you didn't find enough answers. That's what it'll come down to. Let's move in. A season will be successful if, and again, this one's very simple. You, you're going to hear later in the show, me and Connor O'Gara talk about it. Simply put, the season will be successful if Mike Bobo's scheme works. That, that, that's all it'll come down to. Does Mike Bobo's scheme work? Does he get the most out of the offensive talent you have on the roster? Because, again, like I said, spinning it into a positive, trying to be positive. I didn't say there's zero talent offensively. You look at every position unit, there are guys that we feel like have potential. But that's all they have right now is potential. They're unproven. Does Mike Bobo's scheme take the guys that you have on your roster and get the most out of them? Is he able to do that? Is Mike Bobo truly the guy that, you know, we all hope and think he might be? You know, one of the better OCs in the SEC and arguably the country. Is he that guy? We'll see. Again, Mike Bobo's scheme working, pivotal to this 2020 football season. Prediction for the 2020 unit. And I guess I sort of teased this. Um, when I gave my official season predictions for the 2020 football season. But my prediction for the Gamecocks unit, listen, I, I know I was harsh on them. I know I was. I was harsh on them the first time. But it's hard not to be. I, I think the struggles offensively – and listen, the big thing, too, is you have to think, who South Carolina's playing early in the year? The defenses you're facing in Tennessee, Florida, Auburn, LSU. Texas A&M after the bye week. I mean, it's a gauntlet to open the year for a team that is looking to find its identity, for a team that is looking to build some early confidence offensively. It's not exactly friendly in that regard. I think South Carolina in the second half of the year, you'll see it pick up a little bit. But I'll be honest with you guys, I think the struggles will continue offensively. I think South Carolina is going to average right around 20 points per game. Um, listen, going back to why I think they'll be better as well. Listen, if Ryan Halinski takes that major step from freshman to sophomore, I think that could help out this offense tremendously as well. But I just think going through that first half gauntlet, there are so many question marks on this side of the ball. There are so many questions and I'm not trying to be negative, but there's so many question marks. You can't, you can't deny that. So I think South Carolina will get it going offensively in the second half of the year, but by then I just I, – I think it'll be a little too little too late, if you will, as far as to salvage the season, which is why I picked three and seven for my, for my record. But my biggest thing, and I guess what scares me about the Mike Bobo offense and makes me skeptical, is that, you know, even if 
this offense works, even if his scheme works, even if you find an identity. I don't expect this Mike Bobo offense to be some high-flying 35 or 40 points per game, anything crazy like that. South Carolina is going to have to win 20 to 17, 23 to 20, 24 to 21. It's going to be those type of games. It just is. From what we know from Mike Bobo's schemes, that's what you're going to see. So you bode that with a tough schedule, questions at the quarterback position, questions all over the field. I think they're going to struggle. I think this Gamecocks offense is going to struggle. Again, I think they're going to hover right around 20 points per game. I know I said 18.6 points per game as my prediction. I think they'll hover right around 20 points per game, but I just I think it's going to be a rough year. I think it's going to be a rough year offensively for South Carolina, so I hope I'm wrong. Um, all right, cool. So that concludes the offense. We'll do defense on Monday and then special teams next Thursday as well. Um, let's get into news and notes really quickly. Kickoff times have been announced, 7.30 against Tennessee. We got the night game against the Vols. Let's freaking go. SEC Network, September 26th, 7.30 on SEC Network. Week 2, noon at Florida. Uh, South Carolina is going to get an afternoon game for the Auburn game, so either noon, 3.30, or 4. And then against Texas A&M later in the season, a 7.30 night kickoff. So I'm loving the night kickoffs. Awesome, awesome stuff. Um, Unrelated to sports, I know you guys have probably seen this. COVID cases on campus are up over a thousand. Um, the only thing I wanted to say about this is I, I would be willing to bet anyone that I give it a max, a maximum two weeks, and I bet you by next Friday, students will be pulled off campus. If I had to guess, no matter how you feel about the coronavirus, I'm just saying that like I think that's probably gonna be a thing. I think that'll probably be a thing. So probably gonna happen. Um other news, USC 1,001 odds to win the national title per Superbook Sports. Go put your money on Hey, go to my bookie and put your money on it, actually. Um, also, another big thing relating to the offense, Will Muschamp naming his top three starting receivers. If the season started today, those guys were Shai Smith, Xavier Leggett, and Jalen Brooks, the winget transfer. So, there you go. Those are going to be your starting receivers if the season started today today so let's get in these listener questions voicemails and then connor o'gara conversation um actually do have a voicemail that i think i probably missed from the last show so we'll jump into this uh we'll start with the voicemail and then we'll knock out these listener questions hey chris wanted to call in and talk about the second half of the schedule as we know and i know you've talked about the starts off with a&m in the second half and i think everybody knows you know we played a&m pretty well obviously excluding last year always feel like we're one, maybe two plays away. Seem like if, you know, those plays go our way, maybe we win. But I keep going back to one thing is that Jimbo Fisher is always going to outcoach Muschamp. And that's, I know people are going to get mad about that, but that's just how I feel. I feel like Jimbo has a big advantage over Muschamp in that regard. And then follow up with a trip to Oxford. I think a lot of fans have kind of written that off as a W just because of old news, but they have Lane Kiffin now. And we know that the Lane train, uh, we, we've seen what he can do. And being that that game's in the second half of the year, maybe he gets his offense and his system kind of rolling. But in the same sense, maybe we're hoping that Ole Miss is kind of beaten up by the time we get to him, considering that, yeah, their their schedule on that on the other side is pretty pretty brutal too. 
then we had Missouri at home with Drinkowitz, and everybody knows and is an agreement that we kind of gave that game away last year at Missouri. Two defensive touchdowns and just never was really in sync in that game. And now you have them at home, but in the same sense, we if you see what Drinkowitz did with App State last year, beating us, what can he do with Missouri's talent? I think South Carolina still has enough to win this game. Then Georgia comes to town, and everybody's going to think it's – well, I'm assuming everybody's going to feel that it's going to be a repeat of last year. I think Georgia comes in, asserts themselves early. They're not going to make the same mistake they made last year. I don't want to say this and think this, but I think it gets ugly and it gets out of hand early. I think Kirby Smart's going to want to make a statement and show that last year was more of an aberration. The Kentucky game scares the hell out of me. Being in Lexington, it'll be in December. It'll probably be cold, especially if it's a night game. Kentucky's going to have one of the best offensive lines in the, in the conference. And when they beat us five years in a row, they beat us on the line of scrimmage. I know they lost Lynn Bowden, but I think Kentucky, Kentucky's never going to be an easy out. It's going to be aggravating. And I also want to see what the team's mindset is when they go into that Kentucky game. If they can beat Ole Miss, they beat Missouri, maybe somehow split the A&M and Georgia games, you feel that they clip Kentucky on the road, you have a, a sense of optimism going into 2021. People are real excited, having a lot of returning starters coming back. And he continues on. That's my buddy Tim. So he continues on here. Hey, Chris, figured I'd leave a part two as, as I didn't know I ran out of time. I got cut off there. But I figure if you beat Ole Miss, you beat Missouri, you're able to quit Kentucky, maybe split the A&M and Georgia games. 2021 is a – you go into 2021 with a lot of optimism around this football team. However, you lose to A&M yet again. You slip up and lose at Oxford, come up short. Maybe you beat Missouri. You get obliterated by Georgia. You pack it in, and then you lose to Kentucky. I think Will Muschamp is, has the hottest seat in the country. I don't think he gets fired. Uh, you've touched on this, but I don't think he gets fired unless the wheels just totally come off. You lose to Bandy, you heaven forbid, go 1-9 and nine or 0-10 and, and just show no signs of improvement. I, I, don't, I, I just don't think he gets fired. I see this team going 3-7 and seven or 4-6, and six, and that was before Marshawn Lloyd got hurt. I could also see it going two and eight, five and five, but I think three and six, four, or three and seven, and four and six are is where this team is at. The Tennessee Old Miss games will really determine that, as you've talked about. So, wanted to get that in there. Sorry for the two-part voicemail, but uh, want to get my thoughts in there. And hope you're doing well. Take care, man. Tim, appreciate it. No, good buddy of mine, Tim. Always great conversation. <clears throat> whenever he leaves voicemails, it's always very in-depth like you heard. And I mean, yeah, listen, there's a lot of opportunity the second half of the season. There's no question you touched on that. Um, I, I know that <clears throat> we are on the similar side of things and as far as record. You know, I've got the Gamecocks going three and seven, and obviously you do as well. So, um, you know, I, I think you're sp- – you know, I, I agree. I think three and seven or and or four and six is, is right. That's – that's right on the money with this team. I talked about with the Vegas, the Vegas line, the Vegas over-under at three and a half. I think it's right on the money. You know, until we see something else, um, <clears throat> you know, until we see something else to tell us otherwise, 
I think that is right on the money. I think that over under three and a half is right on the money for this football team. And I pray that we're wrong, but I think it is. Again, like you said, there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of opportunity. You think about the Georgia game. You think about the A&M game, even the Kentucky game. I know people don't want to give Kentucky credit, but Kentucky is going to be a good football team this year. They're going to be a good football team, period, point blank. So, you know, you can win some of those late if you can take care of Mizzou and Ole Miss too. I think even if you just beat Mizzou, Ole Miss, and Kentucky and win those three, um, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're setting yourself up for the end of the season, again, to be positive. You, what, you, you'd be winning uh, three of your last four. You know, it'd be a solid way to go into 2021, but I could see it going the other way as well. Agree with you, Tim. Appreciate the voicemail. Uh, let's jump in these listener questions really quickly. Thomas underscore Brady underscore H. Night game equals home field win. Noon game equals home field loss. Let's go SEC East. We on the way. I'm assuming you're talking about the Tennessee game, which, hey, I'm hoping the night game helps. I know it's going to be different at Williams-Brice, only 20,000 people in there, but, hey, we love a night game either way. I'll take it. Um, Krusty Andy, who gets us the most touchdowns this season? I think this is a really good question. Who has the most touchdowns for South Carolina? I mean, I, I got to go with Shy Smith. I mean, you, you have to think Shy Smith's going to have the most. Um, but then again, maybe a running back does. Who? Heck, I don't know. But the most proven offensive player, the most proven offensive playmaker on this team, I got to go Shy Smith. I have to go Shy Smith here. Um, Austin 20 underscore. How do you think running backs perform with the loss of Marshawn Lloyd? Like I said earlier, I, I think there's enough serviceable guys back there to, again, be solid for you, to be productive. But I don't think any one guy in this running back group is Marshawn Lloyd, is going to fill that void left by Marshawn Lloyd. So, again, I think you have enough options back there to be productive at the running back position. We'll see, though. Uh, I am Kale. Do you truly think a run-heavy scheme will be the way to go for the Cox this season? I think so. I, I, listen, I think you can get to 5-5 five and five running a, a run-heavy offense, being an efficient offense, not turning the football over, not making mistakes, and setting your defense up to make big plays and make big stops and, and, and putting your defense in good positions. I think you can go 5-5 five and five and do that. I, I genuinely do probably think – with the lack of offensive playmakers, that probably is the best way to go this season. Um, last one, Cody Hall, five. Gunner Stockton for 24 Heisman. Hey, why not? Screw it. Gunner Stockton for Heisman, 2024. Let's go ahead and print the T-shirts. Why not? Um, all right, guys. Appreciate the listener questions. Have a fantastic interview. Connor O'Gara. We had Chris Marler last week. Now we've got the other half of the Saturday Down South podcast and Saturday Down South. Connor O'Gara joins the show. Phenomenal guy, first off. Phenomenal conversation. You guys be sure to go check out Saturday Down South. By the way, they do a fantastic job. And like I said in the beginning, we talked about a little bit of everything, from the Big Ten to the SEC to South Carolina. We really covered it all. So sit back, relax, enjoy this interview, this conversation. It is brought to you by our friends once again over at MyBookie. Guys, listen, football's upcoming. At my bookie, that can only mean one thing. It is winning season. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means free bets, super contests, survivor, and more. At my bookie, winning season is all about your chance to win big. Guys, you can bet anything. Bet NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball, UFC, college football, NFL, whatever it is. You can bet whatever. The craziest sports summer of your lifetime and fall of your lifetime, I'd add, is here. Guys, it's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your cash. Invest in your intuition. Select from hundreds of future bets, or you can bet games in real time with my bookies live betting. Guys, put that big brain of yours to good use. 
go to mybookie.ag, use the promo code Gamecocks. That's mybookie.ag promo code Gamecocks and double your first deposit. Guys, new players get to $1,000 in free play. Like I said in the beginning, if you only want to put in 100, guess what? They'll give you a free 100 to play with. 250, they'll give you 250. 500, they'll give you 500. 1,000, they'll give you 1,000. It's that simple, guys. It's designed to add excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. Thousands across sport wagers, props, and parlays await. Sign up now to bet with the best and celebrate your victory. Again, guys, that's mybookie.ag, promo code Gamecocks. Your winning season begins today only at mybookie. Enjoy this conversation with Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up show, we had the other half of Saturday Down South in the show last week and Chris Marler. This week, he's a senior national columnist for Saturday Down South and Saturday Tradition. And like I said, he is the other half, the other co-host of the Saturday Down South podcast. I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Connor O'Gara. Connor, appreciate you taking the time, man. It's a pleasure to have you on. Appreciate you having me on, especially after Marler comes on. It's kind of like, you know, he sets the expectations and then I can come in and either at least get really close to that or maybe even exceed it, depending on how things go. You'd rather be the closer than the starter is what you're saying. Amen to that. You're setting the bar so you feel pretty good about this this appearance. Absolutely. You know, (laughs) Marler and I have learned to to kind of play off of each other. This is year three that we're doing Mm -hmm. this podcast together, but he has gotten to the point now where like, I early on, I kind of would be like, oh, like if he would do something public, I'd be like, oh, what's he going to say? You know, how's it going to come off? And now dude just goes on like radio shows across the country, crushes it and knows so much about SEC football. I mean, he is an encyclopedia when we get to do our just met more games all the time. I'm just baffled at some of the stuff that he's able to come up with. So, yeah, it's been uh, been fun getting to do that, but always fun to be able to follow him up. Yeah, no, it's you guys are a great duo, and like I said last week and stressed last week, for anybody listening, if you haven't done so, go check out the Saturday Down South podcast. Go follow Saturday Down South. I, I want to start with you, Connor, not on South Carolina, because obviously we're going to talk a lot about the Gamecocks, but you cover a lot of Big Ten, and I, I was thinking about this yesterday, just scratching my head. What is the Big Ten doing? I, I mean, what, what are they thinking right now? Because to me, it's baffling that they still haven't reversed this decision to play football this year. Obviously, I think the Pac-12 is out. I think the Pac-12 doesn't really care that much about college football. But the Big Ten, and we saw the backlash when that announcement first came out, we kind of all know the story to this point that the Big Ten sort of thought everyone would follow their lead, and it obviously turned out that was not the case. But, you know, you see Central Arkansas and Austin PA play over the weekend. I think Central Arkansas tested, had their COVID test. Everybody came back negative. Mm-hmm. You're going to see college football all this weekend from smaller conferences what is? Do you think the Big Ten is going to turn around? Because to me, like I said, it's just baffling. I have no words for it. I can't believe the Big Ten is still kind of dragging their feet on this one. I've said it a lot these past few weeks or so, but so much of this has been about optics. Mm-hmm. And that's the frustrating thing for college football fans is we don't want to hear people making these huge unprecedented decisions based on optics. We want them to be based on science or facts or look, they point to this study and they say, this is exactly why we made this move when, you know, we're seeing all these different opinions from the medical experts across the power five conferences. And that is why the SEC and big 12 and ACC have continued forward with this season because they have gotten the AOK from their medical experts to be able to do this. Whereas the big 10 said, you know what? myocarditis we just can't push forward with that right now and it scared them 
And it's not that, you know, this isn't serious. This is a pandemic. This is 180,000 people who have died in this country from this. But this is still something that we're still trying to figure out new information. And it was strange to see the Big Ten make this decision that was so unprecedented at the time when, you know, you go back to the scheduling stuff. When they announced the conference-only schedule, and Kevin Warren is under the impression that everybody is just going to follow in the Big Steps, Big Ten's footsteps, and that sort of happened in a way. But at the same time, it was like, "Oh, so you're just going to like go off and do your own thing? Like that's how this is going to work?" And it's been frustrating to watch the Big Ten one not understand the just the the, the mammoth expectations and and the ripple effect that comes with a decision like this. And to have seen how the league and Kevin Warren has since admitted, look, I didn't understand that the backlash was going to be as strong as it was. And seeing the way that they have sort of tried to cover their tracks a bit, make it look like they're still trying to get a fall season going. It's still kind of not, oh, they're on the phone with President Trump and they're doing this and they're doing that. And it's like they've done so many things the last few weeks just based purely on optics. And that's the frustrating thing because Big Ten fans, and, you know, I deal with this a lot on the Big Ten side for Saturday mm-hmm. tradition and our writers and stuff and what they've had to deal with, not knowing if we're going to have a fall season or, or not. And, you know, dealing with that on a daily basis has just been a, a nightmare. It's an absolute mess. And the entire brand of the conference, no matter what happens this year, has taken a huge hit. Yeah, it just seems like there's dysfunction all over the place. And I think the thing that's kind of ironic is, I, I, I'm sure you'd agree, the Big Ten, it seems like the reason they did this was – they almost wanted to get a leg up on everybody. They thought, again, everybody would follow them and, like you said, follow in their footsteps. And I feel like they've just made the SEC look better because the SEC took the wait-and-see approach. And I think you guys talked about this. But, you know, for a while, and me and Chris talked about this last week, you know, I know Chris was one. He was very vocal questioning Greg Sankey and the SEC Mm -hmm. and what they're thinking and what they're doing. And now we sit here. Now we sit here just, what, 25 days away from kickoff and I think we all look now and say the SEC was actually really smart for what they did. What, what's been your overall impression of Greg Sankey, the SEC, how they've handled everything? I've been critical of him at points because when Kevin Warren announced the scheduling decision, I kind of said, you know, what's Greg Sankey waiting on? It kind of seems like he's a little bit on his heels a little right. bit. And then with the release of the schedule and the way that that whole thing was handled. The, the news like dump, the weeks, news dump feel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was brutal. And you're like, what, what's going on, man? Like, is he just getting pulled in too many different directions? Mm. And you take a step back and you take a breath and you realize this is someone who understood when we get kids back on campus, this entire conversation is going to change. And there's going to be a lot of very knee-jerk reactions when that happens with cases like UNC and Notre Dame and Alabama, where you see, and South Carolina, I mean, Mm -hmm. where you see these high numbers on campus and you're like, all right, well, what are we going to do with this? We're supposed to have a game played on Saturday. And instead he said, okay, let's, let's push this back to the point where we can still have a relatively normal season, September 26th start date. You can Mm -hmm. kind of get a feel for how this is going to go when kids are back on campus. Maybe we've changed things. Maybe we've had kids in quarantine or maybe these, these athletes are getting a pseudo bubble, so to speak. But I I praise him for the way that he's handled this because he looks like the smartest guy in the room. Mm. I mean, he really does during this process in which there's nothing that can really prep you for this. Kevin Warren has reminded us of that at every turn. We're we're shown many examples of his inexperience as opposed to Greg Sankey, who has been measured, hasn't been reacting to just one specific thing, has been adamant about, look, we've got to get this thing under control. We feel confident with the protocols that we've put in place. Here's why we want to be able to have a season. Here's how we think we can best do it. 
I think Greg Sankey gets a lot of credit for this. And, you know, I don't know how much that matters long-term and mm -hmm. well, it remains to be seen if we're going to have a season that actually finishes. I absolutely hope we do. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I think that if you're an SEC fan, you feel good about the fact that he's the guy that who's running your league right now. And as we know, power five commissioners have so much power in this sport. Mm -hmm. And you don't hate the fact that Greg Sankey has all this power right now. Yeah, I, I, I know you'd probably agree again. I think this is probably going to be the wackiest season we've ever seen because I, I was just thinking to myself, I mean, we're going to have spreads and lines and stuff like that. And, you know, what happens if two, three days for a game, your starting quarterback is out with COVID or something? It's yeah. like it's going to be so unpredictable in that regard. But I will say I've said all offseason, we're going to get off it in just a second because I know everybody's so tired of hearing about the coronavirus thing. But as far as the pandemic relates to football – you know, I, I've said all offseason, I think if the powers that be, people that are in charge, if everybody just keeps their cool, I think we will be able to have a full season. Um, you know, kind of on an unrelated note, you were talking about, you know, the numbers for South Carolina just went up over a 1,000 positive tests. And however you feel about it, I mean, that's not a good thing, it, no matter how you spin it. I think it's going to come to a point where probably South Carolina, amongst a bunch of other schools, they're going to move to online only. They're going to move yeah. to getting students off campus. And what – what I think is kind of funny, what's going to happen, you're going to almost get college football in that bubble scenario that I think many were pitching before the season. I know it's impossible to necessarily put college kids in a bubble, but, you know, I was talking to somebody else about this. I, I for one, would be all for the kids getting off campus and it just being the athletes there because you're going to, you know, you're going to eliminate so much risk that these football players have of, you know, getting the virus and us, again, us getting through a season, you know, successfully, if you will. So that's that's the hypocrisy, though, right there is that university presidents who have tens of millions, tens of billions, that's billions with a B mm, yeah. uh, worth of endowment that they got to worry about. And they're having these kids back on campus. Why? Because they want yeah. that tuition money. Yeah. And they're they're not testing in the same way that football programs are. And that's something where like, OK, you know, Nick Saban brought this up. and I thought it was a perfectly fair point to make. It's like all right, you're going to condemn football and say that football is spreading this when we are incentivizing kids to want to stay free from these situations in which they're going out to bars and stuff like that mm. and just being reckless about this as opposed to bringing kids back on campus, having in-person classes. When I, you know, I've been saying for, for a few weeks, like it seems like a pretty easy concession to make to just be like, hey, fall athletes, y'all can take online classes. You're good. Joe Burrow didn't take a single in-person class in his two years at LSU. <laughs> I understand he's a grad student, but at the same time, it's like, what are we doing here by pretending that, that college athletes are normal students yeah. when there are so many ways that they've been able to, to get resources that, that show that they are not normal students. They, they aren't. They just aren't. That's reality. So I question why these programs haven't gone off and said, you know what, you're a college athlete. We need to make sure that, that you are able to honor your scholarship in the best way possible. And we want you to be able to play your sport. And to do that, we're going to try and do the best possible measure. We're going to try and put the best possible measure in place to be able to put you in sort of your own little bubble and try and have you not deal with these in-person classes. Because that's where I feel like they could have made this change a little bit ago and they weren't necessarily willing to do that. Like you had Ole Miss linebacker Momo Sonogo, who in that Washington Post story comes out and is like, man, what, what are you guys going to do about the fact that I've got four in-person classes this week and I've got, you know, the kid who's sitting right behind me who's been going to the bars all week. Like, I can go into quarantine and be shut down for 14 days just because of that. And that's why this thing is so tricky right. and it's going to be so tough to monitor because there are still those variables that we have to deal with. Yeah, and I agree with you. There, there's really no excuse not to do that in a sense. I mean, look what we're doing right now. It's 2020. I mean, it's just yeah. – there, there's no excuse not to do it. So, 
let's get on the field, Connor. Let's get off of the uh, the not so much fun stuff to talk about. Let's get Gladly. on the field, and I want to start first. Before we get into South Carolina, one more thing. I want to go overall SEC, your projections. I want to know East and West, who you've got winning the East, winning the West, SEC champion. I know Florida has been the sexy pick this offseason, but obviously with the additions to their schedule, things kind of change that. And in the West, I mean, I would say you're not wise to bet against Alabama, but, hey, maybe is this Texas A&M's year? You know, I was talking to Marler last week, Reese Davis having A&M preseason ranked fourth in his poll. And, I mean, Ooh. A&M's getting a lot of love either way. They're getting a ton of hype, and justifiably so. You can definitely make a case. But just really quickly, your rundown of the West, rundown of the East, and who is your SEC champion? Can I say something real quick on it? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I've said this before throughout this, the offseason. Sure, Marler has heard me say this stat like probably 20 different times. But it's the thing that gets me so fired up when talking about AM because I'm not I'm not here to hate uh, on on a program. They're a very polarizing team, I feel like. Very they polarizing. They are. They are. They're a team with one top 15 finish in the 21st century. Nobody likes to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. It was with the best pro, one of the yeah. best players in college football history in Johnny Manziel. Yeah. But the thing that frustrates me about AM is because like so I see a ranking like Reese Davis, who I respect right. everything that Reese right. Davis does. My wife wants me to look like Reese Davis. I'd be lying <laughs> to you if I said I wasn't wearing these glasses in part to look a little bit like uh. Reese Davis. But putting the Aggies at number four after a year in which they had five games against top 15 teams, teams who finished in the top 15, right, right. that's 300 minutes of football. They led for seven minutes and 42 seconds of that time. Look, if you're a team that's, you know, you've been right there, you've been in the national championship conversation, I get that. We're talking about a team with, again, one top right. 15 finish in the 21st century, and it was with Johnny Mansell. So that's why I can't quite get there yet. When we, we saw last year, they just were not on the same level as those elite mm -hmm. teams. And we saw, I mean, they, they got blown out against LSU. You know, I know against Clemson, they played Clemson tough or whatever early in the season, but they still were not able to do much of anything offensively. So that's why I can't get there with AM. I don't have AM winning the West. I have Alabama still winning the West. That's cliche. That's boring. The overlooked thing with Bama is that this is a team that prior to last year had never started more than one true freshman in the front seven. And at the end of September, they were in a place where they had to start four true freshmen in the front seven after losing the likes of Dylan Moses. LeBron Ray went down in the South Carolina game. He was really, really coming on strong. He had a hit in that game that was just unbelievable that you just like you should go back and watch it's incredible but they have so much talent returning just from injury alone in the front seven and then you know you've got guys like Shane Lee and Christian Harris that got meaningful experience for that group last year so that's the reason that I think that Alabama's defense while it might not necessarily look like 2012 Alabama or anything like that mm. I think that makes Alabama the favorite in the west and in the SEC in general again that's boring if I'm picking a team in the east right now I'm probably going with Florida. Now, I say that before we know about – there could be more opt-outs on the way, right, which right. would not surprise me at this point. There could be more positive COVID tests. That pick is subject to change. Right. And while I do actually have – a little spoiler alert – Georgia beating Alabama. Don't tell Marler I said that. <laughs> uh, that game, I still haven't even told him that, so this is going to be breaking news to him. <laughs> But I do have Florida coming out of the division as of right now, just because I like so many of the pieces that they have coming back on offense. I think Trayvon Grimes is ready to be a star in this league. I am in the pro Kyle Trask camp. I am not necessarily buying into all the pro football focus talk about how he can't throw the deep ball, about how he doesn't make any big-time plays. I think he adjusted really well in Dan Mullen's offense, and having a full offseason or whatever this is 
to be able to do that. I think he's going to be much better, especially with an offensive line that last year was not very good at Florida. And they still managed to have a team that lost their starting quarterback in September and won a New Year's Six Bowl. I think Florida's going to be really, really good this year. The schedule is tough. There might be an East winner that loses two games. I don't think the SEC champion is going undefeated this year. I think we can rule that out. I think yeah. even Alabama loses a game. I think in a year where you have to play 10 conference games, yeah. nobody is going to be lucky by winning the SEC this year. It's not going to happen. You're facing 10 of 13 possible SEC teams. So I think it's going to be great to watch. I'm so excited for the 10-game conference schedule. I, I'm a big fan of this. And while I don't necessarily think it's realistic, I would love for the league to get a, to a place like this moving forward where they mm -hmm. do want to incentivize those more conference games. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I was talking again to Marler and other people about this. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how are we going to go back to – I don't want to go back to Cupcake Weekend. I don't either. Like, it's going to be great matchups every single week. And like you said, yeah, it's – I mean, the SEC is just going to beat up on each other. I mean, it's, it's funny. We've seen the arguments from different fan bases and maybe some valid, some not. I mean, you could say there's some teams that got screwed in the scheduling and then a team like Georgia who added Arkansas, Mississippi State. But when you're playing 10 of 13 – Exactly. Everybody's schedule's hard. I, there, there's no really getting around it. Um, I found it interesting, by the way, that you said Georgia's going to beat Alabama, but Florida's going to win the East. That, that, is, that is an interesting pick. So I'll, I'll tell you, I've got Bama winning the West. Again, I, I just think that how can you bet against Nick Saban and what Alabama has? And then I, I think Georgia's – I like Georgia for whatever reason. I don't know why. I want to be wrong because obviously I'm not a Georgia fan, but – I've got Georgia winning the East, and I've got Georgia beating Alabama in the SEC title game. Ooh. I don't know. I feel like I, – I, I feel – I don't know why I'm picking that. Because, like, it's one of those things where until it happens, until it happens, why would you pick it? But, see, I think Bama beats Georgia in the regular season. I don't think they the beat rematch. them twice, though. I love Georgia's defense. I think out of JT Daniels and Jamie Newman, you're going to have an elite quarterback. Zamir White at running back. George Pickens at wide receiver. This feels like one of those years for me. If Georgia doesn't get it done this year, I mean – I, we, I feel like we say that a lot about Georgia. If they don't get it done this year, when will they get it done? But I don't know. I, I think Georgia's offense, if it comes together, their defense is just going to be scary. I mean, their defense is going to be one of the best in the country. Yeah, it absolutely is. And that's, that's the thing that's like – Georgia-Florida okay, is going to be an epic matchup, by the way. That's awesome. going to be an incredible matchup. Should be really, really good with what those two teams have from a strength standpoint. Right. I, I think that that's going to be a great battle. And I think it's going to be a battle that lasts all year long. And I, I don't necessarily – the East might not even be decided with that game because the way that they're, you're having 10 conference games to be able to play. And because, you know, Florida's got the LSU game, Georgia's got the Alabama game. Mm. I don't know that it's necessarily decided in Jacksonville, but right. I, I do think there's something about Florida that if you're, if you're trying to, to figure out the best possible time to catch them, where Florida fans know this, it's like mm. Todd Grantham's defense has failed multiple times against <laughs> Georgia. And there, are, there is a, a large group of Florida fans who feel like, you know what, if Florida can't get it done against Georgia this year with how much inexperience Georgia has on that side of the ball, right. they can't find ways to confuse them and different ways style of pressure, man, you got to let Todd Grantham go. And that's crazy because the guys led a couple of top 20 defenses, right. but at the same time, it's almost a little bit, it could become a little bit, here's a Big Ten reference for you, like what Michigan has against Ohio State, mm -hmm. where like Don Brown, the Michigan defensive coordinator, he leads really, really good defenses year after year, but dude can only run single high safety so many times and get torched by modern offenses like Ohio State that have five-star talent on the outside, enough for the fans to finally be like, you know what, this isn't working. We need to try right, something right. new. And I don't know if Florida fans are going to get there with Todd Grantham, but if they lose again to Georgia in a year like this, where you really <laughs> got to feel like, especially after this weird offseason, 
where if you're a team that's inexperienced, you feel like this, this has been a disadvantage to you and Florida has experience on both sides of the ball. You feel like if you're a Florida fan, this is, this is what you could have, this is exactly the situation that you would draw up. Now, obviously that's not going to be an easy thing, but I still come back to that sense of urgency. And I think that could ultimately fuel Florida in a different way than we've seen the last couple of years. For sure. Connor, let's move into South Carolina because I know everybody's very eager to hear your thoughts on the Gamecocks. I've said this all off season. When you start with this season for South Carolina, listen, we talked about a little bit off air. Probably nothing will happen as far as coaching shakeups across the country just because of the the economic impact that the COVID nineteen pandemic has had. But mm-hmm. when you talk about this season, in my opinion, it's it's got to start with Will Muschamp. I, I mean, I, I think that either way, no matter what, say South Carolina could go zero and ten and he'll be back. This is a big year, though. I think for the perception of the program and the perception from people as far as. Which way are you trending? Are, are you seeing any progress? Is this a program trending upward or downward? I think this is a huge year for Will Muschamp. I've said that I think South Carolina, to show real progress, needs to get to five and five or better. Like, I really believe there's a path to at least five wins. I'm not picking it, obviously. I'll go ahead and tell you my pick is three and seven for the season. I went conservative for my predictions. I picked seven and five last year and got burned on it. I went a little conservative. But I think to show real progress, you need to go five and five or better. What, what's your overall thoughts, I guess, just going into year five of Will Muschamp? Listen, he's done some good things at South Carolina, but that 4-8 and eight season last year, losses to North Carolina, losses to Appalachian State at home on senior night, which if you can't tell, that's the one I just cannot get over. Yep. I just can't get over that. But either way, that season has a lot of people scratching their heads. I mean, it kind of feels like what happened at Florida is happening, happening again. Obviously, you bring in Mike Bobo, who I want to talk to you about in just a second, but your overall feelings on Will Muschamp going into year five, what do you need to see from him just as a head coach and from this program for you to feel good about that he'll be the head coach in, let's say, five years? South Carolina fans are in college football hell. (laughs) Thank you for confirming that. (laughs) The exact scenario that you just brought up, if he goes five and five, Ray Tanner's just going to extend it even more. Yeah. And and that's, 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 maybe worst case scenario because then you're in an even deeper financial hole. And if you don't think he's the guy, I don't think any long-term decision should be based on a year like this. And I say that for Derek Mason. I say that for Gus Malzahn. I say that just because even coming into the, coming into the year, I felt like I had a very distinct kind of, this is what Will Muschamp needs to do to show that he's worthy of getting another year and not forcing Ray Tanner to pay that $12 million buyout or whatever it is these days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's kind of all up in smoke now with a conference-only yeah. schedule and with all the different hurdles that you're going to have to overcome during the season when there could be games on the schedule where it's like, you know, they're facing Ole Miss, and that's a game that you would expect them to win. But, oh, by the way, they've got three starters on the offensive line now. Do you then – punish him for doing that it's a it's a really tough spot so I just think that's why it's really difficult to judge a coach in a year like this after such a strange offseason and you know I, I get where South Carolina fans are coming from because let's be honest if his buyout was a penny last year he would not still be the South Carolina coach there's just no way yeah. and that's that's the frustrating thing is that you do have to consider the financial ramifications. And as you talked about, you know, South Carolina wasn't in the position last year like Florida State. And the rumors about South Carolina apparently trying to get in touch with Florida State being like, <laughs> how do you pay a buyout? That's $18 million. We've never done that before. Um, you know, I think there's something to be said for that and how it could potentially shape how they view Will Muschamp this year in a year in which you're seeing, you know, cuts from universities across the country, even Dabo Sweeney's taking a six figure pay cut, which I realize is dropping the bucket for him. But at the same time, all of that perspective needs to be remembered because 
What if South Carolina gets off to that 0-2 start? What if they get off to that 1-4 start? Everybody's just going to rush to the conclusion of, hey, we've got to fire Muschamp. This isn't working out well when there are just so many other variables to consider. So, yeah, I, I totally understand where South Carolina fans are coming from because I'd be frustrated too. I'd be frustrated after a four-win season, even though you had the Georgia win. You know, it's the worst season since 2015, obviously. And I just feel like that's not exactly – a thing that a year four coach in the SEC usually survives, mm-hmm. especially one that's getting paid like Will Muschamp is. So I think it's tough moving forward. But if I'm betting today, I would say that no action is going to be taken until at least after 2021. Yeah, I'd agree with you 100%. I think, Connor, the guy that if South Carolina's head coaching career, because not even just at Carolina, but if his career as a head coach is going to be revitalized, it's going to be thanks to Mike Bobo. Uh, we, we all know his defenses have been, you know, I would say at South Carolina, they haven't been quite as good as I would like, but his defenses have been solid. It's all about the offensive side of the football. Yeah. Mike Bobo comes in, obviously. Um, you talked about with Georgia, and I think that's the intriguing storyline with South Carolina, too, is these schools that are breaking in these new offenses, not getting really – you maybe got half a spring ball. You know, you're getting a weird fall camp. And, and for South Carolina, I talked to Marler about this, the thing that I hate about the new schedule, which I love this all-SEC schedule, but the thing I hate – with the old schedule, South Carolina kicked off with Coastal Carolina, ECU, Missouri. You kind of eased into it, right? You got a couple of weeks to get your offense rolling. No, you got Tennessee week one and at Florida week two. There, there's, no, there's no easing into this. Um, talk about just your overall thoughts, though, on the Mike Bobo hire. What are you expecting from his offense again? Because I think this is the most important coaching hire of Will Muschamp's coaching career. Absolutely. And it was weird um, because I remember when the Bobo news broke, we were doing a live podcast at College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta ahead of the SEC championship. And we had Georgia fans who were, who were in the crowd that day. And we're like, we missed out on Bobo. And there was like one South Carolina fan in the room or something like that. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's suddenly a bidding war for Mike Bobo. Like, where, where are we at right now where teams are that desperate and they feel like that is, that is such a big time ad because, you know – I wonder about these these coordinators, and Chad Morris kind of falls into this camp as well, these coordinators who had pre-playoff era success. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much has the game adapted to them and how much has, you know, we, we've just seen so many of these offenses to now they're the norm and offenses that can spread you out and do some different things. What was once kind of sort of revolutionary and a little bit on the cutting edge is now just very much like what you prepare for prepare for on a weekly basis and I'm not saying that Mike Bobo can't succeed but I do have a little bit of of that concern about a guy who didn't really have a whole lot of success at Colorado State Mm. from an offensive standpoint and I understand part of that is Colin Hill and all the injuries that he dealt with I think that's the question that I have and especially these first few weeks with that schedule so daunting you're talking about if they do have those early struggles Mm. is there going to be that friction with Will Muschamp and Mike Bobo where obviously I think Muschamp wants Ryan Holinsky to succeed. I absolutely do. I I think that so much of this, like getting away from this cloud of you can't coach quarterbacks is dependent on Ryan Holinsky working. Mm -hmm. And is there that friction early on, especially against those two really good defensive minds to start off the year where Mike Bo was like, I just want to get my guy in there. I want to get the grad transfer in there, the guy who knows the system. And is there this kind of tipping point with that quarterback room and how that's all handled because that to me could determine what South Carolina's season looks like. It could determine what their upside is, is is there going to be this, this patience with Ryan Linsky in this offense 
or are they just going to pull the plug on him immediately and feel this sense of urgency to go with a Colin Hill? I don't know, but I think that Bobo is so important for this moving forward. And I do, I agree with you hundred percent that I think this is going to kind of be the hire that defines Will Muschamp's tenure. Connor, it's funny you bring up the quarterback situation because I'll tell you right now, it's every single day I feel like I'm back and forth. But right now I would tell you, I think gun to head, if I had to put money on it, from everything I've heard, seen, whatever, I would probably bet on Colin Hill to be the starter right now. Yeah. I just – I think that, you know, with the experience he has in Bobo's system, and like you're saying, you just can't afford to come out and not run 100% of the playbook. I, I want to get your overall take, though, on the quarterback position because I know Ryan Halinski is a guy you guys have talked about a lot on your podcast and your content, stuff like that. And I think all South Carolina fans and probably just fans in general want to see Ryan succeed because of his background, his family stuff sure. that happened. But when you take a look, and I think there's a legitimate quarterback battle. You know, these guys have been splitting the ones every other day. And I've told fans, and it's it's funny, I see a lot of South Carolina fans on social media kind of, you know, belittling Colin Hill. Listen, I understand he was a very average quarterback at, at Colorado State. He was injury prone, whatever. But the fact of the matter is he knows the playbook like the back of his hand. I mean, Nick Muse, a tight end on South Carolina's team, he joked that, hey, Colin Hill knows the playbook better than Mike Bobo does. And with all due respect to Ryan Holinsky, he's a really smart kid. He's a talented kid. He has the intangibles. But he's drinking water out of a fire hose right now, I feel like. And, that, and that's just something he cannot help. So what's your overall take on the quarterback position? Because, again, I, I agree with you. I think even if Ryan starts – and It'll be unfortunate if there is that friction, but I think it's just one of those things where everybody knows how big of a year this is. Like, if they feel like Colin Hill is going to give them a better chance to win, so be it. They're going to throw him out there. But your overall take on that position, I think there's going to be a short leash either way. And honestly, like I said, if I had to put money on it, I would probably put Colin Hill as the starter today. And that would be such an interesting peek inside the dynamics, right? Because I felt like at times Will Muschamp was too loyal to Jake Bentley. He really wanted Jake yeah. Bentley to be yeah. able to work and just to be finally the guy to say, hey, look, I actually know how to develop a quarterback. And I think a lot of that still exists with Ryan Holinsky. Mm -hmm. And if I'm, if I'm betting and, you know, you follow the team so closely, obviously, and you've got a really good feel on that as well. I'm giving Holinsky the slight edge until we're sort of told right. otherwise because I sort of feel like, I feel like Colin Hill was brought in to be like, hey, you know, if there's like first three games of the year, it's just not working. It's just mm -hmm. not working in this system. That's when you bring in a Colin Hill and you say, all right, run the offense. You need to be on the sideline to sort of mentor a, a young quarterback and Ryan Hlinski because let's be honest. I mean, the decision-making is not there yet. And it, it isn't for most true freshmen in the SEC. It wasn't for Bo Nix last year. I right. thought he made some horrible decisions. I think he's getting way too much hype in the offseason when there are a lot of questions about him, by the way, with the new offensive coordinator as well. But I think with Ryan Holinsky, we need to see that learning curve early. And it's got to be that clear separation of this kid is getting it. He is making that year two step because that friction is going to exist. And, and I think it's going to exist potentially throughout the year if both of them can stay healthy. Now, one of them loses the job. I mean, I assume they'll just go line up at receiver and do what kind of South Carolina quarterbacks do. But <laughs> oh, I, I don't know how that really impacts, you know, what, what exactly they're going to be able to, to get in terms of production out of their starting quarterback. It's a very interesting dynamic to watch in Columbia. For sure. Let, let, let's move to the defensive side of the wall, Connor, because I feel like if South Carolina does have that season I was talking about, five and five or better, they're going to have to have the best defense they've ever had under Will Muschamp at South Carolina. I mean, you have to like what they have. I mean, listen, you lose Javon Kinlaw, you lose DJ Wanham. You lose T.J. Brunson, who I think was a very underrated player there in the middle, a true leader on that defense. But 
you know, you have to like Zach Pickens. You think about Jordan Birch filling in where, where Wanham was. You have one of the best duos at defensive back in J.C. Horn and Israel McQuamu. And I, I've said this all offseason. It's not necessarily a slight, but just, you know, listen, I know the defense was put in, a, in bad positions last year because you were just so bad offensively, and it's crazy. You know, I'm a big preseason magazine guy, Connor, and I got the Athlon magazine, and one of the stats, you know, they have their favorite numbers. One of the stats that jumped out at me is South Carolina was first in the SEC as far as tempo goes. They had 20 seconds between plays, and that was first in the SEC. Well, you, you obviously know the problem with that is, is when you're not scoring a bunch of points or getting a bunch of first downs, your defense is gassed. I mean, your defense is going to be gassed 24-7. So, listen, I know the defensive numbers last year suffered because of that, but South Carolina, I don't think they finished higher than maybe 50th nationally in defense. And to me, I could almost say, listen, when you hired Will Muschamp, you knew offense would be a struggle. You knew that was going to be something you were going to have to work out. But defensively, I mean, going into year five, you should be expecting this defense, in my opinion, to be a top three, four in the league, a top 25 defense nationally. I mean, maybe maybe I'm overshooting, maybe I'm a homer, but I'll just ask you the overall outlook of the defense. And to me, you know, will it be an indictment on Will Muschamp as a coach if he can't get this defense to perform at an elite level in year five? So I, I think that it should be in contention for the best defense at South Carolina. That 2017 group, I believe, finished 25th yeah. nationally. Great, great turn. Great with takeaways. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. That is what they did extremely well. And you saw, yeah. I mean, when they took over in the Outback Bowl, yeah. they, they were a force on the stretch. I, I think being one of the top three or four units in the SEC is so challenging. And I think yeah. that, like, you look around and you're like, okay, well, you've got Georgia, you've got Alabama, even, like, Kentucky. I mean, Kentucky's yeah. defense should be really, really good with all that production back after they had a top 15 unit last year. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're at the point now where the pieces should be in place. And I say that despite the fact that you lose to Javon Kinlaw, who was – South Carolina's best defensive player since David Clowney. I mean, yeah, at least in that conversation. But yeah. I, I like the fact that you've got two guys who feel really, really good at, at the cornerback positions. And I think J.C. Horn, despite the fact he doesn't have the interception numbers, I think from a coverage standpoint, he's tremendous. And I think he's a guy that you can put on a number one and you can just say, go take care of that. Because South Carolina is going to see some really, really good receivers this year, even though they don't have to see Jamar Chase anymore with right. him opting out. But I think that that's a really good place to start. Where I'm fascinated by is is in the front seven because I want to see Zach Pickens and Jordan Birch and how those guys really, really develop because Pickens on the inside last year, you know, you don't really expect true freshmen to line up in the SEC on either side of the ball, offensive line or defensive line, and just take over. And he wasn't necessarily that guy. But if he makes that big year two jump and he becomes, you know, a potential all-SEC guy, that changes things for them. Now, Jordan Birch, I would set the expectations relatively low just right, because right. of how weird this offseason's been. Somebody who arrived late, maybe the fact that there was a pandemic kind of changed, maybe not as many guys getting ahead of him on that learning curve because he wasn't going to be an early enrollee anyways. But I think that he's going to be used a little bit more in that spot, you know, where, you know, we're talking about a buck linebacker, somebody who is not necessarily an every down type player just yet, but a physical freak and somebody that well, much of him knows, like, I need to get this kid out there. I want to make sure that people are seeing him and people are seeing a glimpse into the future. If Pickens and Birch look like the real deal this year, that's what's going to change this group. And that's what's really going to allow them to take that next step and to be one of the best units in the SEC. 
getting there will, as you said, depending on the offense. I mean, running a block, Brian McClendon offense last year that was so predicated on that tempo. And, mm. you know, I remember what Tom Luganville said a couple of years ago, where he's like, it's going to be an Oregon 2.0. It's like, <laughs> no, no, not exactly. But, you know, I think that it's just, it, it is going to change the feel with Mike Bobo running that offense. Maybe they will get a little bit more of a breath and that defense is going to have a better chance to succeed. But I think that having one of the best units of the Will Muschamp era or, or a unit that competes with that 2017 group in terms of production is very realistic. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Birch and Pickens, and you know, I, I would say that's why you recruit two five-star guys. Those are your gym; yep. they, they've got to pan out for you. So, we we talked a lot, you know, or at least about the early part of the schedule. And listen, we're three, but just over three weeks away from kickoff, which it almost feels surreal saying that. Yeah. Honestly, three weeks away from kickoff. But, anyways, I, I want to talk about that first game with you really quickly, and just lock in on that one—the Tennessee game. I, I think one of the most intriguing, if not the most intriguing matchup of the opening weekend, that one, and I think Auburn and Kentucky are without a doubt the top two games. But South Carolina, Tennessee, night game at Williams-Brice Stadium, I think it's a really big game, Connor, for both programs. And when I gave my predictions and overall outlook for this 2020 season, I I said that it's South Carolina's most important game of the year. I I just think to wash out that nasty taste from 2019, to set the tone for this year – get things going just on a positive note. And like I said, for both programs, I think, because one of the big things I think for South Carolina is South Carolina, at least it told itself, you know, when Steve Spurrier came to South Carolina, South Carolina, I thought passed Tennessee as a program. I mean, for the last 10 years or so, it felt like, and even Will Muschamp, when he got to South Carolina, he owned Tennessee. And I mean, he really still does own Tennessee to this day when you look at his record. On the other side, you've got a Tennessee program that obviously we all know what they're trying to do with Jeremy Pruitt, get back to what they once were, compete with the Georgias and Floridas, be in that upper echelon of the SEC East. So I think for both sides, it's very, very important. It's a coin flip type of game. I think you're seeing that with the Vegas spread. Your overall outlook on what looks to be one of the best matchups of the SEC schedule week one. I agree that – it's huge for South Carolina to get off on the right foot, to open up with a statement after the way that last year ended and with all the questions surrounding Will Buschamp's future, it would really do him well. You know, we talk yeah. about how those narratives can follow you for eight months during an offseason like this, I guess a nine-month offseason. But I do give Tennessee a slight edge just because mm-hmm. the matchup that I that I would worry about for South Carolina is Jeremy Pruitt with all that time to prepare with that defense that looked much better in the latter half of 2019, part of which was schedule based, but they just got better. They just learned how to actually tackle. They were gap disciplined. They had guys like Henry Tioto step up, you know, as true as a true freshman, they do have to find those edge rushers. Losing a guy like Daryl Taylor is going to be tough, but that is a team that has recruited extremely well. And especially on the defensive side of the ball that I think that given what South Carolina has on the offensive side where we're talking about a new look group that's going to be going through a bit of a transition, you know, the, the loss of Marshawn Lloyd, but we don't know necessarily if we can expect Ortre Smith in the opener as well. It's just all those moving pieces on offense for South Carolina. I tend to think that Tennessee is able to sort of keep them at an arm's length. Now I do think it'll be a really good close game. It could be like a first to 20 type of deal, something mm-hmm. like that. But I gave Tennessee a, a slight edge, but, that's that's the type of game where if you want to if you want to change perception, you, you've got to be able to if you're Will Muschamp because you've seen Tennessee kind of you know mm-hmm. pass you up from that yep. point since since Jeremy Pruitt's coming to the conference. <laughs> that's the type of game where you're like, from a recruiting standpoint, you want to be able to win that and just show, hey, look, they're not passing you, they're not passing up Tennessee in the way that some are, are kind of calling out right now. 
So from, from an optics standpoint, I think that's one that he would definitely be uh, in, in sitting in much better position to be able to get in week one. <laughs> No, for sure, and I agree with you 110. percent I've got I've got Tennessee winning the game 23 to 17, but I, I think it's a 23 20, 24 21. I th- I think it's a coin flip type of game that way for sure. Defensive battle. Um, we've talked about the first game, so you got South Carolina starting 0 and 1. I know you're doing your crystal ball predictions for the Gamecocks. Just give your overall outlook again. I've got South Carolina at three and seven. Marler felt like I was being a little harsh, but I can admit to everyone again, I'm going a little conservative. I, I mean. I'd maybe pick four and six if I wasn't being conservative, to be honest with you. But I've got three and seven right now with wins over Vanderbilt, Missouri, and Ole Miss. And I'll even tell you, I'll be honest, I think the Ole Miss and Missouri games in the back end of the schedule scare me. You know, I sent a video to a buddy of mine. I was hey, look at this. Barrett Salesia said Ole Miss is the most underrated team in the SEC. Doesn't bode well for us. So <laughs> it's just like, like the last thing I want to hear right now. But you got the Gamecocks starting 0-1. Just give your overall outlook. If you had to give a record projection right now for South Carolina, what would it be? It's between 3-7 and seven and 4-6. and six. And there are a couple of things that I'm still trying to play out in my mind just because, you know, I have, I've, as of right now, I have those same exact wins that you have. I feel like we've agreed a lot on this. Um, but the Ole Miss thing, I, I'd feel a lot better if I knew that John Rice Plumley was going to be the guy. Mm. But it kind of seems like Matt Corral is going to be starting at Ole Miss, and that frustrates me as a big John Rice Plumley supporter. Um, just I think the kid is absolutely electric, and I just want to see what he can do in a Link Kiffin offense. But um, as of right now, that's kind of where we're looking because they would have to go out and get a game like either Texas A&M mm. or Kentucky it would be the two ones that I think I think that can happen, but if we're talking about those games, because those are both late in the year, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kentucky's A&M's. the last game. A&M is week seven, I believe. Yeah. So if they come off the bye and they face a team like A&M, or maybe if A&M's already out of contention, here's the thing that like people aren't necessarily talking about. If we get to this week six point and there's all of a sudden opt-outs at programs that are That's out true. of it, Good point. In a year in which eligibility doesn't count, I mean, eligibility is just like, hey, kind of yeah. is what it is at this point. If we do see guys that are just like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a back seat, and I don't think that's gonna be SEC wide where that's gonna start happening everywhere. But could a team like AM, which has high preseason expectations, be impacted like that? Could that be a game where later in the year South Carolina is able to get that because they've got guys who you know have a foot out the door to the NFL draft or something like that? Then I think that's realistic. Or those are the potential swing games where. You know, I think there are certain games where, like, I don't care how many how many guys test positive mm. and go into quarantine. Like, South Carolina is not going to probably not going to beat LSU. Like, no. I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily bank on <laughs> no, that happening. Sure. But I think an A and M or Kentucky, where you kind of wonder where they're at from a depth standpoint, if they could be hurt, and and if South Carolina can catch them on the you know on the right week, that's the type of swing game that's going to be so so crucial. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you with three and seven you know, prediction for the year, but obviously that's really subject to change and expectations are, are so fluid this year in this very, very strange college football season we're about to embark on. Yeah, I think the swing games, and I talked about this before, I, I certainly think, and maybe I guess many teams could say this, but the swing games are going to really decide South Carolina's fate. There, there's a lot of games in there that, you know, it, it's funny, we, you know, kind of moving on to a different subject, but you talked about Kentucky. It's so funny you know, I, I think most South Carolina fans still believe that you should never lose to Kentucky in football. I mean, I, I'm one that low-key thinks that, but people have to understand what Mark Stoops has built. Me and Marler talked about this on the last show, that 
you have to respect what Mark Stoops has built, man. They have a culture there. They get their guys in there. You get Terry Wilson back. That's going to be a good football team. So I, I definitely think the swing games like a Kentucky are going to determine, you know, if South Carolina gets to that five and five point, they're able to win a few of those swing games. I wouldn't want to get Kentucky early in the season. I have Kentucky beating Auburn in that season opener. And, yeah. you know, people are going to be surprised by this. Like, I, I know you were as shocked as I was when that opening line came out and it was oh Kentucky plus 11. <laughs> That's an insult. That is an is, absolute insult. Is. I, I agree. All over that. I, I, I'm a big Kentucky believer, and I, and I have been for a bit. Getting to – you know, we've been able to interview Mark Stoops a couple times in the podcast and yeah. stuff like that. And, you know, we've been able to kind of get a feel for their program. Cash Daniels been really good to us the last couple mm-hmm. of years here. And, you know, I, I've really gotten to kind of see – where Kentucky has been able to grow. And they're in a place right now where I did my top 25 SEC offensive players, mm. and I had three Kentucky offensive linemen in the top 25. Like three. And yeah. by the way, all, all three of those kids were former four-star recruits. Like mm. we're not talking about like this random two-star kid who's been propped up just because he's at Kentucky or something like that. We're talking about like U.S. Army All-Americans who are now seniors at Kentucky and who are making their way. And that's why they were able to block teams so well last year. And they had the best running game in the country. And people might not realize, like, yeah, they lose Lynn Bowden. I get that. But they returned three backs who combined for nearly 2,000 rushing yards and 20 touchdowns last year. Like, that ground game was incredibly good. And, you know, I was able to catch up with Terry Wilson this offseason. And his story, if you haven't, like, been able to, to see it, is a wild one. Mm-hmm. And Kentucky is going to start him in the opener regardless of Joey Gatewood's eligibility. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll go on record and say that now. But I think Terry Wilson is going to surprise a lot of people this year. And I think that if he can stay healthy, he stretches the field better than most people give him credit for. And the dynamic that he had to deal with in 2018 with a really, really good defense with Josh Allen and a, and a power run game, where that, that was what they were going to do. And they didn't want him to necessarily turn the ball over, especially when he was dealing with a midseason knee injury for seven games. Terry Wilson was a different quarterback on the bookends of the season. The numbers reflect that as well. So I think that Kentucky has a chance, especially with that defense, which was top 15 unit, which returns, you know, I think 75% of their production. I can't remember the exact number, but I think Kentucky has a chance to be really, really solid and a team that week to week in the SEC were like, oh, all right, Kentucky held its own again. Okay. And by season's end, who knows what we're, what we're talking about when it comes to Kentucky, but that's a game on the schedule that is by no means a gimme for South Carolina. No, for sure. I'd call it a toss-up, certainly. Connor, I want to ask you sort of a fun question I posed to our our listeners and followers and everything else. Um, Obviously, I've talked about five and five being the number. If if South Carolina – because, again, they're three and a half in Vegas right now. So, if they are to overachieve, if they're to exceed expectations, if they're to get to five and five or, God forbid, better, surprise the and shock the entire SEC – if they are to get to that point, when we look back on the season, in your opinion, it will be because of what? Because Mike Bobo worked. Because Mike Bobo was able to able to figure out ways to maximize the potential of this offense. An offense that has really struggled to run the ball immensely under Will Muschamp. And an offense that learned how to have an identity, what exactly that was, got a starting quarterback, and just went with it. And I don't know, as of right now, who's going to finish the season as South Carolina starting quarterback. I, I you know, I love Ryan Holinsky's story. I really do. But this, as you said, you know, this is a time where you need to be able to get results. This is a results-based business, and the scoreboard dictates everything. And I think that if Colin Hill is that guy and Mike Bobo is the one engineering this offense for South Carolina, then 
I don't think South Carolina fans will care if they get to five wins, but I do think that that is really the key for all of this to be able to work. And again, you know, it's, it's the little things as well, like, you know, defense, getting the five-star guys, yeah. as we talked about, to, to look the part is obviously really important, but you know, it's, it's figuring out what it looks like on offense early and being able to establish that identity to establish some sort of a running presence and not use the Marshawn Lloyd injury as an excuse as devastating as that is but Mike Bobo is going to be the key to South Carolina season. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Connor, it's been a phenomenal conversation. Last question before I get you out of here. Your playoff prediction and national champion, oh, do, you, do you have that figured out yet? It's obviously no – right now we're saying no Big Ten. So do you have do you have two? Do you have three SEC teams in the playoff? Is that is that where we're going? Three would be – oh, man. <laughs> The, the masses would ride if yeah, they were three SEC teams in the playoff. I don't know. I, I do think that the SEC is going to get two teams in, though. I think that that's, that's something where, like, when everybody was talking about the 10-game conference schedule, is the SEC going to cannibalize itself? I was mm-hmm. saying to myself, no. Not only does the SEC have an automatic bid, because whoever wins the SEC is going to look like he just got through a gauntlet, but mm-hmm. you're going to probably have the second team in the SEC who's going to get there because, look, you have that many teams. You have – what is it, like – can't remember the exact number it's like six of the top 13 teams in the country in the AP poll before teams are eliminated are from the SEC preseason narratives aren't going to really change with the SEC we're kind of entrenched into these with a conference only schedule so I don't necessarily think that that's going to change I'm not picking against Clemson I know that's going to pain a lot of your listeners (laughs) to say that but I can't sit here today as much as I'd love to be like I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Sam Howell and UNC is going to upset Clemson. I can't, I can't quite get there, but I do feel like UNC and Iowa state are the two teams that I'm squatting on as my, how did they get there in the midst of all of this? Um, they're still competing for a playoff spot into December sort of team during, after this pandemic season, but I'll take Clemson and Alabama as cliche as that is. <laughs> as of right now, and this is subject to change. I'll include Florida in that group. I'll include Florida in that group. And then just because nobody in the Big 12 is on Oklahoma's level, but Oklahoma's not on anybody in the SEC's level from an elite standpoint, I'll take Oklahoma as well. So that's a very chalky, boring playoff. It's safe, though. I mean, that's probably about what I would take, too. I may substitute Florida for Georgia, but, I I mean, listen, I think that's a safe pick. I, I think that's a smart pick, really. I, think it's a I mean, if you have me on again in a few months or something like that, we'll see. That might <laughs> yeah. be subject to change. But, yeah, as of right now, that's that's the direction I'm leaning. Love it. Well, Connor, really do appreciate you taking the time. Again, guys, go check him out. He's at Saturday Down South. He's on the podcast, the Saturday Down South podcast. Connor, always a pleasure, man. Would love to get you back on sometime later in the season. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. All right, he's Connor O'Gara. I'm Chris Phillips. We appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll catch you next episode of the Spurs Up Show.